Hello, welcome to Relatable. This is your host, Teresa Freeman. Listeners, we have, and viewers, <laughs> we have a great episode for you today. I speak with Tony Bird, the Executive Director for Teach for America for the state of Washington. One of the reasons I love hosting this podcast is it gives me an opportunity to connect with old friends. Tony and I uh, were friends when I lived in LA almost 30 years ago, so it's been a while. <laughs> Uh, we had a great conversation. It was great to reconnect. We talk about his passion for education. We talk about all of the work and how he's dedicated his career to giving access to those who need it, the inequities, the injustices as far as the education system is concerned and the work he's uh, been doing in that space. We also talk about his own work personally in terms of uh, vulnerability and how that in particular has helped him to be hugely successful and it's been a critical success factor for him. Um, and we talk about soft skills, of course, and uh, we get his take on why they matter. Uh, there's a lot of great stuff in this episode. Enjoy and stay connected. Thank you for being on. I'm so excited to see you. It's been too long. I can't believe we just figured it out it's been 30 years. That's crazy. Um, it is a very long time. And um, But you're someone who I have such fond memories of in terms of our time that we hung out together. You've got like tons of energy, a lot of positivity. So we're going to talk about that. Um, but first, what I thought we could start with is when we met um, in California, when you were working for Teach for America, right? It was like your first I think time te working with Teach for America right out of college. And so the first question I have when I was thinking about preparing for this and talking to you was how shocking was that experience for you leaving college, right? And preparing theoretically for what you were going to do and then actually then going and being a teacher and that process of being placed and then that experience and how much did it meet your expectations for what you thought it would be or what was that experience like? Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> out of the gate. Out of the gate. Let's go. Uh, let me start by saying I, uh, you know, so I'm a, I grew up as a, a white male in a home of, you know, one mom, you know, obviously a mom, no dad, really sister, plenty of economic privilege and no clue about educational equity and all. not a whole lot of clue about my own privilege, which I see a lot better today than I even did then. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was actually quite shocking in a lot of ways. To, and so, you know, here I was from West Hartford, Connecticut, starting at teaching in South LA, what was then called South Central LA. You know, here's this white guy teaching in a community of color. And I remember a student coming up to me and saying, uh, sir, what are you doing here? I'm like, I'm not really sure. <laughs> you know, like, I think I want to be helpful. Do you think I can help? That was a fourth grade kid. And so, you know, I, I think at the time it was, it was shattering in so many ways. I think one, I would say, I didn't understand the issues of educational equity until I got there. And I realized that the students that needed most support were getting the least from our country. Um, I think I had a little way too much of a sort of white savior mentality at the time, um, to be honest, but I knew I had the right intentions of trying to do something with the privilege I had. Right. And so, yeah, it changed the rest of my career. Did you know that in college? Like, did you know, um, I, I guess, what was part of the decision to pursue Teach for America out of college, right? What, what helped you make that decision? Yeah. yeah, I mean, you probably don't actually know this, but it wasn't straight out of college for me. And okay. so I went to Bucknell in Pennsylvania. Um, it was okay. I studied international relations and economics. My first job out of college was as a nonprofit environmental organizer in California. And so uh, that started my change where I started to see the issues of social justice. Um, I was working on the issues of pesticide spraying of farm workers in California while they were working in the fields, like just, you know, spraying while people are working. And I thought, well, this is crazy. And so I got inspired by social change. But then I actually went overseas to teach in Budapest, Hungary, and that got me hooked on the idea of 
teaching. And then I knew about Teach for America because it started the year I graduated from college. So I applied to Teach for America and came back. So I was out of college four years before I started Teach for America. And then how long is that commitment to do Teach for America when you- Two two years, yeah. And what do you, I mean, I know we're gonna talk about this some more in terms of what you're doing now, but at that time, right? Mm -hmm. What- what are you signing up for? Like when, and, and well, now I guess it, it matters more now, but when you, when you do sign up to do that, what is, what is the commitment you're making? And, and, and did you know that where you're going to be placed, like how much say do you have in that? Or is it you sign up for the program and then it's like, Hey, three months before you get your assignment, this is where you're going. Yeah. So we teach for America, which is actually where I work now. And I'm sure we'll get to that. It's like full uh, circle. Yeah. 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 So you once you get into Teach for America, you give three top choices where you want to be, and hopefully you get one of them. And Los Angeles was one of mine, and I got it. And so I went to Los Angeles, and um, so that's how I I started there. And I think I just forgot the second part of your question, but that's what happens when you're my age. <laughs> I asked you said you said you give your three top choices, and then for you, LA was your top choice, and you got that choice. Uh-huh. Uh, and you knew it was South Central, like you knew that's where, where you were going to be? Well, no. So I knew I'd be in Los Angeles. I did not know that my student teaching was in South Central, but I actually taught in Pasadena. Uh-huh. Okay. And I taught at a school in Pasadena where uh, about 97% Lat- Latin- Latinx and most of the white community members had left that area and the students were all bust from Altadena, Northwest Pasadena. And that really opened up my eyes to the whole slew of issues. Yeah. What would you say, like given that experience and obviously you've dedicated your career, so I'm going to embarrass you. I, you know, I Googled you, you're Googleable. Yeah. Uh, you um, what? Yeah, you're Googleable. I can't be Googled? Is that what you said? <laughs> no, you are Googleable. Oh, so I, uh, this is what I found. Bird Uh-oh. has worked in Washington school since 2002. He served 11 years as principal and assistant superintendent at Edmond, at Edmonds public schools and is in his third year as the associate superintendent of curriculum assessment and special programs. And that's, that predates your time now with teach for America, right? Yes, that's right. So that's a lot of years in education. Yes. Yes. <laughs> a lot. And there's still more to go. There's still yeah. more to go. What is it about it that you love and you've made it your life's work? Like, tell me what it is yeah. that you're passionate about and why, you know, that's a, that's a long career and a sustained career in a, in a profession that's not, that's challenging these days. Nah. <laughs> no. Not at all. Well, for anyone listening out there, yeah. for me... The drivers, so just a little bit about me. My father was an alcoholic and a drug addict. He was a doctor, but he lost his medical license. And what I've come to realize over time is I've been trying to give back to kids what I didn't get. So honestly, like the best role I ever had was being a principal where I got to work with hundreds of students and bring as much care to them as possible. So that's a huge driver for me. The other is uh, just the, the unequal opportunities in our school systems and in our country has driven me from day one, right? So if, if you go to a school in a privileged community based on taxes in that community, there's a lot more money pumped into that school. You had much more opportunity prior to even going to school and after school. And so I just don't think that's just. And so I have tried to find every possible way to support uh, a more just educational system. And I refuse to get cynical <laughs> about it, even right. though I'm ticked about some stuff. Yeah. yeah. Tell me how, like, it's, it's not an easy question to answer. I, I would say like post this experience you're in now, which I, I want to know more about, but in terms of your role as principal and superintendent, tell me some of the things that you've been able to do that you're proud of and excited about. Um, you know, one of the things that I think given your tenure that I would also like to know is what you've seen change and, and are there positive things happening and, and are there things that 
are still frustrating, right? I mean, it's a lot of questions I just asked you at once, but um, it's not a very good interviewer. But I, you know, let's start there with just, you know, what are some of the things that you're proud of that you feel like uh, yeah. you made some improvements or you're seeing improvements, right, in the system? Yeah, there's a lot I'm proud of. I would highlight a couple of things. So when I was the associate superintendent of a long title, curriculum, assessment, special programs, uh, I was charged with several things to make our system more equitable. So uh, we actually, in, we actually, the demographics in our AP programs were essentially white and Asian, but that were not, that was not the demographics of the district. So we actually made a number of changes to have the AP programs mirror the demographics of the district. And that was a huge deal. That gave so many kids the opportunity to a rigorous curriculum to go into post-secondary. We also became the first district in Western Washington to have the AP capstone program across all four schools, high schools, which is the highest program you can complete in the AP program. And that gives you a better chance to get into college which I still believe to this day, a four-year degree pays off at uh, over a million dollars in the course of your lifetime. So if we're talking about economic mobility, everybody deserves that shot. If we're talking about the rigors required in your curriculum to get there, we better make sure we have it and we better make sure it's equal in its participation in terms of the demographics. So hugely proud of that. And then I'll, you know, I'll share one other thing I could go on and on about. Yeah. Yeah, boring podcast. But uh, I, when I was the assistant superintendent in the Edmonds School District, uh, we dramatically ramped up our early learning programs uh, for three through six year olds. And we worked with the Gates Foundation and we spread it across our district. And then I, I played lead on getting four major districts involved here in Western Washington. Seattle Public Schools, Everett, Edmonds, and Highline School District. And so, so many kids got extra, extra learning that they wouldn't have gotten. Yeah. You feel like in this work, like you're able to have that intersection of like fulfillment plus passion, right? So one of the things that we talk a lot about on this podcast and with people that are navigating careers and trying to find that place of doing what I love, um, you know, and doing work that means something um, and doing work that I'm good at (laughs) because you can be really good at something, but if it's not fulfilling or you don't feel like you're at that intersection, it can be really draining. Right. So for you, um, does, has this work kind of met that criteria in terms of the fulfillment aspect, you're good at it, right? And you feel like you're you're making that impact. Yeah, I mean, I, I just said to my own daughters who are 18 and 20 that, and they're in college, yeah, find something you care about, and everything else will come. And mm-hmm. so I feel incredibly right, thankful, grateful that I've had this career that is mission driven. And so, yes, that is incredibly fulfilling. Now, if you look closely, you see all this gray. There's a whole new thing I got going on here. Yeah, I like it. I like it. It looks good. (laughs) I wasn't looking for that, but thanks. There's a lot (laughs) of gray gray going here, a lot of hair loss. There's been a lot of stress over the years, a lot. So it's been both fulfilling and overwhelming, anxiety-producing, exhausting, and I wouldn't change any of it, but it's, it's been a very beautiful and a hard career. What makes it so stressful and what brings about the anxiety? The, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can look at the problems, the inequities and feel like, oh my God, this is never going to change. Right. It's, it can feel quite hopeless or you, you know, you work with kids and, and you know, I mean, the number of stories I could tell of really rough situations for them that you only have a tiny bit of influence over that's exhausting or the adults working with students that are carrying trauma or you know trying to manage your own life while you're trying to do that uh it's all brings a lot of stress and uh it's true for the profession in general educators are under a lot of pressure 
Uh, and we see people fleeing the profession, which is, you know. Yeah, I, I did want to talk a little bit about that. I, you know, I have questions about the system in general, like not the inequity is a significant component for sure. I, I also question how, how effective we are in terms of the entire system. And as, as in terms of how people learn mm -hmm. and really being able to evaluate that competency and, and how there's one way that, that we're either deemed smart or not smart. And there's one system in which you can operate. And, um, you know, and I'm, I'm someone who is like a victim of that, right. There was like nobody really watching out for me in terms of my own education. I wasn't the best student. Nobody was there kind of shoring me up. I was lucky that I was friends with a lot of smart people that, that at least I knew like, Hey, there's options. If I kind of figure this out the way that I should figure it out to be in the system. Mm. Um, but I was definitely deemed a not smart person, right. By, by sort of looking at the kind of um, black and white of it. And then, you know, in the end, that's entirely not true. And, you know, been able to be successful despite that. So I, I don't know, like it, I, it's a massive thing. It's a massive question. I'm just, I guess the question I have for you is, do you see it changing? Do you see us being able to change the way the system works and the way that we evaluate uh, academic strength or how people are learning. Ready, go. <laughs> Boom. <laughs> well, I'll tie two questions together. You asked, yeah. you know, there's a lot about the education system that's so much better than when I started. So when I started, we didn't have standards. We didn't have assessments, really. We didn't have STEM programs and multiple pathways the way we do today. I think it's, I believe in looking at what does work and, you know, shining lights on bright spots and, mm -hmm. and building from those. Mm -hmm. So in that way, a lot of things have changed. However, at the same time, we have, a, generally speaking, a school system built for, built for the industrial era, right? And so the idea that kids fit into particular grade levels and particular ways of being and particular assessments and particular times, I have a lot of doubts about all of that. And in fact, I've spent, you know, I was a fellow of something called the Deeper Learning Leadership Fellowship which was exploring ways to create very deep learning environments for kids and assessing them differently and giving them projects to work through. And there are great examples out around the country. Uh, I do generally believe that the system is way out of date. And in fact, I'm working on various ways to change that. And we're launching an innovation hub here in Washington. And so that's uh, about where I see I can, yeah. what I can do. I mean, I can look at it and say, oh, it doesn't work. Right. Try some. There is an appetite. Like, so when you talk about your sphere where you are, like you're in Washington state, right. And then yes. do you see that by state, it, it varies in terms of where people are on the spectrum with respect to progress, innovation, change? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yes, yes. very much so. Yeah. And, and education is clearly a very political environment, especially now, right? So this very minute, politics are running through schools, right? It's it's CRT, anti-CRT, it's mass, no masses, these books, not these books. Um, it's this innovation or not. And so, you know, schools inherently belong to the public. They're then the public funds them and publics are different in different places. Right. And so people have a lot they want to say about the way schools should be. And so for sure, there are places that are more innovative and changing faster than others. And I think the social, political, and economic environments, those communities influence all of that. And let's talk a little bit about what prompted this part of our conversation around teachers, right? And, and you know, I don't know. I, I think about it a lot in terms of the equity and compensation and, you know, what, and the, I don't know, the stress, the burden, the, the comp, like all of it, right. You know, it, it's such, it's like, 
how do you make that more attractive to entry-level talent, right? How do you make it a profession that people want? Especially there's a lot of caring, smart, competent people that want to teach, but because of those things aren't pursuing it. So what can we do to change that? How do we, how do we fix that? Relatable is sponsored by TFA Soft Skills, your one-stop shop for workshops, coaching, speaking, and soft skills development. If you'd like to hire Teresa, visit www.tfasoftskills.com for more information. Oh, oh my goodness. Well, I mean, I do think, so I'll give you an example. So pay matters for sure, right? So a local school district I work in, you can max out at 140,000 as a teacher, uh, where my, right here, where I used to be, that matters. That district's able to attract and keep talent and not have the turnover. Uh, the second thing is you've got to have an incredible culture, right? And so a healthy culture actually is more important than pay. And so that requires, in my view, like really amazing leaders who know how to build that kind of culture. And it's especially in this environment where everyone appears to be incredibly divided. So my own personal view on that, and if I'm not answering the question, let me know, is you've got to, as a leader, you've got to figure out how to bring people together in a broad and diverse coalition for change. And, you know, that's complicated. And so we need great leaders. I think that's that's the most important thing, which is why I came back to Teach for America, actually. And so you mean leaders within the teaching community? Yeah, 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 leaders for teachers. And you asked about the, like, how to make the profession more attractive, and maybe I lost track, but yeah, we need great leaders for those teachers. We need to support those teachers to become great leaders. And I, th- I mean, we got to love on our teachers. You know, yeah, sure, there's some bad ones, but um, it's heroes' work. Yeah. And so sure. I wish our country in general would consider the profession like some parts of the world, um, you know, it could rattle off countries where being a teacher is like being a doctor is mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. So. Tell me about what you're doing at Teach for America now. Tell me what your current, what your current role is and what you're doing. Yeah. So 2016, I was about to become a superintendent, which would have been my dream. I was the associate superintendent. Teach for America called me. So we come back and be the executive director for Washington. And what we do, if listeners out there don't know, is yeah. we recruit, attract, attract, recruit, develop, support a very diverse, talented group of people to become leaders inside and outside the system. And so I made a personal decision that I could have more impact on the state of Washington by supporting diverse talent uh, than I could on my own in one district. And so the vision was, you know, over years, we'll see more and more teachers from our people leading. So my job as the executive director is like many, you know, vision, mm-hmm. strategy, fundraising, et cetera. And so, you know, depending on which way you want to go, we have, we have big dreams and big visions and, and uh, to support our core members and our alumni. And we have about 1400 alumni in Washington. So how hard was that decision to take that? uh, opportunity versus if you, if that was your dream and your goal to be the superintendent, how hard was it to not take that opportunity? Uh, put it this way. I talked to 10 mentors. Yeah. Eight of whom said, that's a silly idea. Don't do that. That's the worst. Teach for America doesn't come with everyone loving Teach for America. So it's, and it was a mess here in Washington. So it, some thought it would be a career ender. And uh, so it was very hard. I lost a lot of sleep. I thought through it a lot. And it's maybe the best decision I've made. So I went against all that advice. And um, it's been great, but it was hard. How? So I want that's something else that I, my, it's funny, even though, you know, we haven't talked a long time, I haven't seen you in a long time, but. If I, when I think about you, I think you're someone who is very brave and someone who appears like on the outside, like is, is fearless, right. And both the way that you kind of, um, go after things, you know, my experience and just sort of the short time that we got to, you know, spend time together. Like it would just always seem like you were 
someone that um, was sort of like getting the most out of life, right? And and like <laughs> kind of didn't have a lot of fear that held you back. I'm curious if that's something you're um, sort of built that way. Is that something you've pursued? Like, is it something that um, you're intentional about in terms of if you have fear and you're like, well, I'm going to push through this because it really usually results in something you know, what you just described, right? It was a huge leap and you didn't know what to expect and it's been the best experience of your life. So tell me just about your like fear to like <laughs> taking that chance, right? And how that's been <laughs> Well, it's nice to think, to hear that you think I'm fearless. I'm full of fear, just so yeah. you know. Um, I'm learning to be more vulnerable, which I think comes with age. But yeah, so, oh God, there's been plenty of times that I'm like, oh my, I can't do this. It's true. I live with a sense of optimism and I love to take risk. And, but uh, in order to cope with the fear that I have at the same time, I work very hard on that. And so the ways I do that are meditation mm -hmm. every day, right? And like, and really try to stay centered. I try to be, I'm working on this right now a lot, be more vulnerable about the true challenges I'm facing. Uh, I build mentors around me. I watch people who take chances and I, I read about those who've gone the third way and it's worth. And I kind of carry in my head for what it's worth. Like it's, I don't mean this in an arrogant way, but it's like, I got one shot to try to have some impact and I don't want to have regrets. And so, um, yeah. So, and uh, every, you know, so I, I enjoy the risk. Were yeah. you a risk taker as a young person also? Like I wouldn't say I was, but I think I learned through the stuff I had to deal with in my childhood, how yeah. to survive, right? Like, so alcoholism, alcoholism in a family um, runs, runs hard. And, you know, one of the traits of an adult child of an alcoholic is perform. There's a lot of downsides to that. And, but I learned to survive and I learned to push. And my mother also was big. Like she would, she passed recently, but like. I know. I'm so, so, yeah, so sorry you. about that. Thank I know you. you guys were so close. I actually want to talk a little bit about her just in terms of, sure. I know she was a huge influence in your life, right? Like I think, you, you know, she was someone I used to talk so highly of. Um, so yeah, to, to keep going. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt that flow of thought, but. No, I mean, she get, no, it's okay. I can connect it to that. Like she, yeah. in a lot of ways, she didn't appear to be a risk taker, but she really was. I mean, so she was, grew up in a little rural town in Southern Idaho and was, I think, one of the only women that went to college at that time in the late fifties. And she was one of two women in medical school at that time. She fought through the glass ceiling, left, right, and center, got her PhD in, when I was in high school and then took off to go to Montana to do this really cool job. And then it, like, I could go on and on and on. Like she just was a warrior for her time, a yeah. trailblazer for women and especially. And so, yeah, so that, that taught me, I mean, she was a much more of an adventure than maybe I even realized. So. What, when did your dad, like what, at what point did your dad leave? Like what, where he was not. Yes. Yeah, so he, uh, I think I was seven or eight. They got divorced. And I, I actually didn't really ever hold a lot of anger toward my dad, but he just, and he actually recovered and, but he never was able to really be a dad. And mm -hmm. so, um, yeah, he, he died about 12 years ago. Yeah. 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 And you, you have siblings. Yeah. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah, I got a lot of siblings actually. So I have one sister that I call my sister because she's my sister and we're tight and we grew up together. But yeah. I also had five half brothers and sisters that my dad had. My dad was married five times. So wow. I never knew those five before me. They were from his first marriage. And I have a half brother from his third marriage that I talk to once in a while. Um I don't but think yeah. I, how did I not know? I feel like I, this I is. I didn't talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. No. I mean, I guess it's like, yeah, it's not, <laughs> not necessarily. I don't know how you would have known dinner, since I never said it, but yeah. Dinner conversation. Yeah. Um, sorry. So this is kind of a weird segue, but it's something that I want to ask you about. 
given your success in your career, right? And your trajectory and your ability to move up and your ability to, um, you know, you went to Stanford for a graduate degree, like you've got some pedigree there and you've had some success. So tell me if, if like, what are the things that have been helpful to you, right? What have helped you to be successful? Um, and what are sort of, what, what would you call kind of the recipe or the ingredients? Um, you know, for every person it's different. So I am curious for you, um, what's made, what's made the difference or what are some of the habits that you have that's helped, helped you to be yeah. successful? Yeah. That's a great question. I really appreciate this time just so you know, for you do. Yeah. I nice. mean, I feel a little self-absorbed here telling my story. Hopefully. <laughs> I hopefully. love it. It's All awesome. Right. No, All it's right. great. All right. All right. I mean, hopefully it helps somebody, but for me, for me, um, one, having something you really care about. So in my case, I really care about educational right. equities. So just drive, drive around that because I feel the passion for that. The other is I work really hard on balance. So I exercise six, seven days a week. I play as hard as I work. In some regards, like people are like, well, you're doing that now? I'm like, yeah. Like I've always been that way. Uh, I try to laugh a lot. I try to keep my social networks really active. Uh, I read a lot. I write. I, my biggest priority in my life are my daughters, and you know, I'm like really loving on them. And so, uh, and then I've been married over 20 years. So it's like all those things have really helped. I think maybe though, the honestly, like. What surprised me the most might be that being the most vulnerable in the really hard times have been, and there've been plenty of them, have probably been the greatest, one of the greatest things for helping me be successful. So when I'm really struggling, which I can certainly talk about or not, I reach out and let people know and they wrap your arms around you and you're like, oh, okay, I'm not alone. Yeah. Yeah, I would like to talk about that, particularly being a man, because I think yeah. there's harder. I have three boys, right? So, um, yeah. And, That's a lot um, to deal with. But I have yeah, a senior, a freshman, and a seventh grader. And, you know, my quest in raising these boys has to been, has been in part that to create observant people mm-hmm. that see what's going on around them than themselves. Mm-hmm. to be kind and mm-hmm. to um, treat people with kindness and all the time, no matter what. Yep. Um, and, you know, this vulnerability or to be, you know, humanity. And I, and I feel like, you know, my seventh grader right now is in the thick of it. And now that it, he's my third one, and I've, I've really seen this with the other two, but it's just that seventh and eighth grade period for, for young men. I mean, it is brutal and kind of keep that, that like sweet soul that all these young boys have. Right. And then they go through middle school and it's just like eviscerated. (laughs) Um, and then they get it back, like, right. Because I'm me and I'm still like, no, we're going to like, you were going to keep this part of you and I'm going to do everything I can to like unwind (laughs) what's happening culturally. So I would love to hear about for you. And I think vulnerability in general uh, people shy away from it. They hide from it. And I agree with you completely. The times that you can really be there and go to that space, it's, it has this great dividend that people don't realize. So I would love for you to talk a little bit more about that or just how you've been able to do it. Yeah. So, well, hold on. I hope this doesn't ruin the video, but you know, I'm sure a lot of people out there listening will know this is Brene Brown, right? Uh huh. Love her. Yeah. I run what I like, which really helped me think about being vulnerable. I know. Yeah. So I've maybe it's sort of a story that will help. In 2007, I was a principal of a school, very challenging school. I was in my third year of my dissertation, and both my kids were under five. And all of a sudden, the room was spinning when I was a principal, and they invited in the doctors didn't invite, they called 911, doctors came, like, uh, your dad have a heart attack? I'm like, yeah, oh, and then they called the medics, they're like, okay, sir, we're gonna have to take you to the ER, right, and so here I am, a principal in the middle of the day, they put me in the ambulance, they take me off to the ER, 
And it turned out I was having panic attacks, right? I didn't have a heart problem, but I was having panic attacks that were brutal. And for a couple of months, and what I learned through that is I was, ta- I was suppressing everything that I needed to let out. And, you know, so from there, I got therapy, I got treatment, I got like, I opened up and I just shared my soul more. Mm-hmm. And I was embarrassed by what was inside me. But when I shared it, so many people, especially other men were like, really? You know what? I've been dealing with that too. I'm like, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You have, eh? Yeah. And so, you know, like, <laughs> and like, and it made me feel better. It's like, oh God, I'm not alone. And then it opened them up. And so I, I'm not always vulnerable, but I, anytime things get, rough i'm realizing more and more the more i'm vulnerable the more i open up the better i feel as a human and actually the better leader i am and it's really hard for generally for men to do it if you'd like to advertise with relatable please email us at info at tfasoftskills.com for more information what do you think is at the root of the fear of it. Right. Like, what do you think is like, I, I want to say more, but I'm just going to leave it there and see, I, I don't want to fill in the blanks. Like why, why do you think it's so challenging or, or it's so difficult? Well, I mean, everyone's different. I think, I think in my case, it's uh, some of the things from childhood where I learned again, as adult child alcoholic, you hold that stuff in because right. if you let it out, people are going to abandon you and not respond. And so it's the fear of people abandoning me. But then what you realize is like, oh, I've kind of abandoned right now because I'm not letting it out. So I'm living on my own. And so it's the fear, like Keegan and Leahy at Harvard have this great thing called immunity to change. And it's just, you don't change because you feel like if I let it out, it's going to be miserable and it's people are going to laugh at me or run from me. And it's actually the opposite of that. And so, and then I think there's all kinds of other things. I mean, you know, I don't know, social constructs right. for, you know. Yeah. Well, it's so interesting because I feel like um, the very thing that kind of in terms of what you're describing, like the very thing when you open up, the very thing that like is holding you back <laughs> ends up being, um such a positive experience, but yeah. it is, it is so difficult. I was just talking to someone that's going through a really rough time. And, um, I was explaining to them, like, I similar, I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but back when I was in California, maybe right, right after, I think I came to California right after all this, but I had debilitating panic. I was like a gore. Oh. I had a, like, I was an agoraphobic at one point in college. Wow. Couldn't even leave my house. Horrible, like debilitating. Also an adult child. Well, now an adult child, but at the time had alcoholic parents. Interesting connection point there. Um, And I remember going to therapy and I was someone who was like, always had it together. There was, you know, very dependable, reliable, like there was no issues. And I remember talking to the therapist and she said, you know, it's like filling your car with gas and like you, you're you eventually just ran out of like your coping mechanisms and all the way you sort of structured this thing to be um, what you thought was like, had the strong foundation. Yeah. <laughs> wasn't so much that. And, exactly. and so this is the process to build your foundation um, is how do you fill up your, your gas is to kind of get real about some of these things. And that was at 20, like it was like 20 years old that I was sort of, um, thankfully, right. Had, it's a weird thing. Like having all that panic was, I hated it and it was so debilitating and I felt ashamed by it. And it's the very thing that forced me to seek help and to change my life and to be more functioning in my life, you know, but it's hard to go through it for sure. For sure. Thanks for sharing all that. I didn't, I don't think I knew that. And uh, isn't that funny? Like all this stuff, you you just don't want anyone to know. You're like, yeah, Yeah. I have it going on here. Yeah. And see you share. And now I feel even more connected. Right. And so yeah. Yeah. truly like, I didn't know that. And, yeah. um, 
Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Well, you too. I yeah, mean, of course. Yeah, yeah. and I, I really, I know, I mean, I really feel like it for, for kind of men and men that are listening and uh, men, men in leadership positions, for sure. Like you have such an opportunity to impact people by the way you model. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, you talking about your mom and just seeing someone, I think that's so powerful, like being able to see someone do things and mm. succeed at them. And then you're like, oh, that's kind of how it's done. So if more people model this and in a yeah. normal way, like in a normal way. Yes. <laughs> right. Not like this whole thing about like your authentic self to work. I'm I believe I'm, I'm like a believer. But then there's like, what's the line between, you know, and, know. and um, Brene has a great thing about that. Right. With her daring greatly. It's like it's not like vomiting everything. Right. <laughs> In terms of like what your issues are, but it's like using it and talking about it when you're moving the needle forward and something positive is happening. Right. I got a lot on that one, but that's for another podcast. I totally agree with that. Right. There's everything's a polarity to manage. Right. If I sit here and just, you know, vomit my life out all day long, <laughs> it's not going to help. <laughs> all right. Let's talk about your positivity and optimism. Sure. And, and how, that has been a factor. Is that again something you have always had? Is that something you've pursued? Um, I love that you've already talked about some of your rituals and habits that kind of help you to keep to, to maintain that positivity. Um, but is that just your nature generally, or do you feel like you've worked at it? Both. You know, yesterday I was on the phone with someone on our team who's amazing. She's amazing. For her, the glass half empty. I said, yours is half empty, mine's three quarter full. And we're both cool people. I don't know. I think I, I like, I really don't know how, but I really am oriented toward possibility. And that comes up. People have said that to me my whole life. And uh, I get joy from it and I feel hopeful. I certainly have to work at it, you know. And I know when I don't actually feel good, but I'm pretending to feel good, you know. Yeah. And that's a lot of extra work and that's not healthy. And so, um, but yeah, no, I'm an, I'm an optimist. And I think part of the optimism comes from taking on things and looking for small wins mm -hmm. and feeling like, Oh, right. Like really quickly, I didn't know how to swim. And then in 2012, I did Ironman Canada. Right. Which is like ridiculous. And so I'm not saying that to like, honestly, to be braggadocious or whatever the word is, but it's, it was, okay, I got to learn to swim. Well, I could like, you know, go try to swim 2.4 miles, but that's an hour and a half and I don't know how to swim one lap. So I just looked for the small wins. Okay. I can, I can swim a lap. This is great. Wow. Success. I'm going to do the next lap. Cool. And so I think small wins are a big deal. And it's like it's focusing on bright spots and looking for small wins make things seem possible that don't seem possible at first. Yeah. And then I'll close by saying, you know, I look to people that are like, like, huh, you're a great model of that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a huge uh, advocate of that. I do a lot of coaching and I'm all, and when I'm working with people like exec coaching, I'll yeah. ask them, who models that? Like the thing that you want or the thing that you um, are trying to develop in yourself, is there someone that yeah. does it well, right? And then it's like the bet for me, it's like such easy learning. You're like, oh, I'm just going to parrot that. And then yeah. it will yeah. become my own reality. Um, so some of the work that I do, which you may or may not know, is I'm very passionate about soft skills development. Oh, right on. And so I... Um, I left, I was in corporate America for a long time and had a, you know, very fulfilling um, career there in human resources. And then um, similarly, maybe to you, but just a lot later in my life, um, started to feel like I need more. I need to feel like I'm making an impact and creating a legacy that's different than this. And so I have found with young adults having my own, but just bigger picture, I feel like the soft skills are greatly lacking in our youth and our emerging talent, quite frankly. And, um, and that that's a result of a lot of different things. Um, and, 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 and interestingly for teachers, I feel like there's all this pressure on teachers 
um, well, teachers are just going to do that. Well, teachers are now parents, teachers are doing everything, you know, that it's becoming like, there's such a pressure on the technical discipline of what kids are needing to learn and do, uh, that this is another, and with the advancement, obviously of technology, like, it's just, I feel like they're getting lost. And so my platform right now is to try to develop and strengthen these skills, um, kind of one workshop at a time, <laughs> but you. also by talking to people like you and hearing in your life, in your profession and what you see, what would you characterize as some of the critical soft skills and why are they critical and why is it important for people to develop them? And just to clarify by that, I mean, like communication, collaboration, influence, right? The, the ones that are, um, nuanced so i'm curious for you if you have a favorite or if you're <laughs> yeah. uh what yeah. what you think you know the yeah. world needs a little more of a lot love empathy <laughs> like so i'll try to tie some things together quickly i'm yeah. fully with you on the soft skills absolutely so if you've if anyone out there has read the book sapiens you essentially know that the world is moving toward ai quickly and um, and eventually, a lot of what we do will be all tech. But the thing that tech can't do is be empathetic, and or at least not yet. And so, and then when if you interview, and I've done this, high level CEOs to say, what is it you actually need? And they're like, we need people to be communicators and collaborators and know how to solve problems together. And so I think those are the kinds of skills that are so incredibly important. And right now in particular, as we see a country just absolutely falling apart in some respects in terms of people getting along, how can we teach the next generation? Well, we got to take care of our adults so they understand the soft skills so that they can translate those to the students. That's where I go back to leaders and say, well, we need leaders that can do that work. Um, so I think it's perhaps the most important thing to do, right? Yeah. And yeah. So I'm glad you're doing it. Thanks. Yeah. It's really? uh, there's definitely a lot of positive <laughs> momentum in terms of people believing that there's a need and what are the right times, I think is what we're figuring out now. Like what are those milestones that mm -hmm. these skills matter and in a way that, that, um, Mm -hmm. people trying to develop them, it may, it matters to them. Right. So, th so there's a little bit of like, what's in it for me and mm -hmm. why, why should I develop these skills and, and where, where's the value. Right. And so trying to figure out, okay, which milestone does this mean the most to you? Is it when I'm getting a job? Is right. it you know, when I'm trying to get my first paycheck? Is it, you know, how do you tie the kind of what's in it for me piece? Yeah. So, um, but certainly I would think in the world of education on the relationship side and, and just being able to, effectively teach and lead, you know, the, those right. people and human skills, right? Yeah. Um, all right. And a lot of this you've maybe alluded to, but I am curious, uh, I, as a sort of wrap up question, um, yeah. you think about young Tony, huh. maybe the Tony that I met, um, but <laughs> what, well, now that you've sort of been through the last 30 plus years, you know, what advice would you give um, to help make the road a little bit easier, right? Or what, in hindsight, um, would you say to young Tony to, um, you know, to, to help him know that it's going to be all right or, or to make things a little bit easier for him in terms of the journey? Yeah. Be a little less afraid of failure. Mm -hmm. Be uh, more vulnerable it's okay. Let it let down the guard. Meditate, <laughs> like slow down and meditate and see the joy of just having life for what it is right now. And be a little less oriented toward performance. It perform results will come through just being who you are. And so, yeah, you know, and uh, yeah, that said, like, I kind of like young Tony. But that's yeah. what I would say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I need so, a little young Tony back too. But yeah, that's my advice. Tell me just really quick about the meditation. What is it that you like? How, what's your practice for doing that? Um, because I'm I'm someone that like it's hard for me to sit still, right? And and the yeah. whole probably I'm the 
prime candidate for it. So tell me how you've been able to cultivate it, how you do it, and, and where, like, where have you seen the benefits from it? Yeah. So all you people out there, I kind of stink at it, FYI. And so like, I'm not going to tell you, you know, I'm Buddha. Like I've been in and out of meditation off and on. Uh, So what I've learned that works for me is, and it's really actually this year that I've picked it back up is 10 minutes each morning. I just do a guided practice. I need someone to guide me or I'll disappear into something and, and let and let go of judgment while doing it. And just, yeah. And what it does do, and sometimes 15 minutes, I follow it with gratitude. And so I send messages of gratitude to people, text them. I find it, it does calm me down and center me during the day. And then I actually go back to it during the day. If I feel ramped up, I did it yesterday. I was like, Oh, I'm feeling ramped up. So I turned the lights off, went and sat in the seat and started breathing again. And so, yeah, that's what I do. I think small chunks, eventually I hope to get it up to, you know, 20 or 30 minutes, but I, I don't want it to, you know, what I could do is turn it into performance. Well, you know, I did it 28 times out of 30 this month at a certain rate. (laughs) Anyway, everything, right? If there's a measurement to be had, that's right. It's like a I scale. I want to be better meditator than you. Do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you are so kind to be uh, available to do this, but also like when I asked right away, you were like, "Absolutely, I'm happy to." So I just I know that you have a lot going on and a lot that you're responsible for, and I just really appreciate the time. And it's been so great to great. like reconnect and and just totally. hear more about you. Like it's. Yeah, one yeah. of the, it's like been one of the best gifts of doing this is I've talked to people that I haven't talked to in a while and I'm, and I learn things every time. And I yeah. feel like there's such great uh, opportunity to hear from others' experiences. So thank you so much. Oh, thanks for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. It's been great for me and let's find other times to connect. Tony. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us and for being so open and vulnerable throughout this interview. After our chat, I'm inspired by your persistence to change access to education. I'm motivated to practice healthy habits like meditation and being active. And most important, I'm determined to continue to work on my own vulnerability. It's in that work that I believe we can all make a difference. Thank you to Missy for producing this episode and thank you to our Relatable community for listening to our discussions. If you get a moment, please subscribe and rate Relatable. We can be found on your favorite streaming platform. Relatable is sponsored by TFA Soft Skills and you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and the TFA Facebook page. Until next time, this is Teresa Freeman with Relatable. Stay connected.